0: Our panel of break-fix petrolheads are back for another rousing what-should-I-buy debate. Using unique shopping criteria, they are challenged to find our first-time collector the best vehicle that will make their friends go. Where do you get that? Or what the hell is wrong with you? At the next Cars and Coffee.
1: Like most enthusiasts in the collector hobby, we are Camaroed, and mustanged out. It's time for something new. Time to rediscover the unsung heroes from a period when square bodies and round headlights were all the rage.
0: You asked and we answered. From our latest fan poll, there was an overwhelming consensus that our listeners wanted us to come back for yet another What Should I Buy? this time hyper-focusing on the cars from 1964 to 1982.
1: And like all What Should I Buy episodes, we have some shopping criteria. This time, anything goes, as long as it's not the same old muscle and malaise we're used to seeing at our local car shows. Our panel of extraordinary Petrolhead panelists are challenged to find our first-time collector something that will make their friends go, Hey, where'd you get that? at the next Cars and Coffee.
0: Joining us tonight are veteran What Should I Buy panelists, Mark Shank, our 90s expert, Don Weiberg from Garage Style Magazine, and Rob Parr from Collector Car Guide, along with special guests Mountain Man Dan and Andrew Mason from the Big Man in a Little Car episode. So welcome to the show, gentlemen.
2: Welcome. Good to be here.
0: Now, before we get started, I just want to say that I've got a new drinking game. It's kind of a two-part drinking game. Every time Daniel mentions a uh, Square Body, that's the first one. And then the second one is every time Eric mentions something Mopar.
1: Ooh, interesting. So
0: is your goal, Brad, to put people in the hospital tonight?
1: <laughs> We're all going to be laid out.
0: As Don mentioned, it's a pretty big bottle and it's brand new. So I've got a long way to go.
1: Well, gentlemen, just like our intro states, it's time to talk about mustard and mayonnaise. I mean, muscle and malaise. So what exactly do I mean by muscle and malaise? Well, I don't know. You tell me. Let's define and turn to our resident experts, Don, Rob, and Mountain Man Dan, to tell us exactly what those two terms mean in the automotive community.
3: Jesus, you say the word malaise, you think, oh, Don.
1: So Don, (laughs) we've talked about this on a previous episode, but to refresh our audience, what is the malaise era really all about?
3: Let's talk about the malaise era. I think that was an era when power was at a minimum because you had what? You had a lot of emission controls. You had a lot of heavy cars from the safety standpoint. It was a point where, you know, all of a sudden the Dodge Charger went from being the Dodge Charger to being a Cordoba. You had to make amends with that because you couldn't market a Cordoba that did zero to 60 in 12 or 13 seconds. That just wouldn't work. So you had to do what? You had to gussy it up with argyle sweaters and pop-up collars. You had to give it pinstripes. You had to give it custom trim. You had to give it all kind of flash to make it look like you were pretty cool. Take, for example, the Trans Am of Smokey and the Bandit. That was an epic, cool car. But it was not capable of anything that they did in those movies. Nothing that car could basically get out of its own way. It still held its head above water compared to so many other performance cars of the era. But compared to say a '70 Trans Am or '71 455 Super Duty, uh-uh, it didn't hold a candle. But what did it have? Flash, pizzazz. It was the bright, shiny object that everybody had to have. And the movie helped it do all of that. So that helped us get through there. Somebody here has a drinking game going on. And if there was ever an era for drinking, it was the Malays era.
2: Yeah, the weight came on the cars and the luxury was definitely a transition as the years went on from muscle to luxury. Every Mm -hmm. year after 72 and actually
4: even 71, they started changing the horsepower ratings to net horsepower from gross. But a big thing during that time frame up into like the early 80s, a lot of the manufacturers were purposely lowballing their numbers. They were putting out in ads to where there were cases where they were taking them from the dealership to a dyno and it was pushing 10, 15% more power than what they were advertising the vehicles to have.
2: And then as time went on, you had EGR, you had other emissions controls. And eventually in 1975, we got the beloved catalytic converter. Of course, everybody cursed like crazy when it came out. At 75, 76 were the lowest power cars. They're definitely sub 200 horsepower. I don't think anything, at least on the American side, was anything over 200 horsepower.
5: There were a few, but you're right. There's just around there. Right. The L82 Corvette was like 220 by the end of the
2: 70s. Actually, back in the late 70s, it started coming back up again. But it dipped around 75 to 77. I think the 77, the z twenty eight came back. And of course, you had your Trans Am. Like Don said, they got flashier and prettier. And unless you tuned them a little bit, they really didn't do a whole lot.
1: So before we go too far down memory lane, let's throw out any exceptions to our general rules. As you guys know, and as our fans know, we try to do this for the first time collector. So normally we come at this with a budget in mind. We go zero to 50 grand, 50 grand to hundred, hundred to infinity, you know, things like that. But I don't know that it necessarily applies here because we're looking for diamonds in the rough. And we already said in the intro that we're going to avoid the Camaros, the Kudas, the Challengers, the Mustangs, I would say probably the Chevelles, a lot of their super popular cars that you see crossing every auction block. You see it at every weekend car show. So we're really looking for something different, something affordable, something fun. Do we need to extend beyond the 1982 limit? Did anybody come up with that as an exception to this?
0: I've got a question. Do we want to extend beyond our borders too? Yes. They didn't screw it
5: up so bad. <laughs> <laughs> then you're talking about Porsche 930s and Skyline GTRs. Well,
0: I mean, I don't, I don't know if they embody like the muscle car spirit. I don't know if we want to go down and try and define what a muscle car is. Every time we do, Mark and I end up getting into an argument about <laughs> something
3: stupid. But now at dinner tonight, my wife and I were just kind of doing a little prelim research on muscle car and where the term came from, et cetera. She found something interesting. The first article so far that anybody has found, the earliest article that mentions muscle car, actually belonged to Jeep, and they called it a muscle car in this one article. So now, of course, me being me, I'm on this kick. I got to go find this article, but supposedly it was back in the sixties because it had a big motor. It was actually considered a muscle car. It wasn't the Chrysler 300. It wasn't the Oldsmobile. It wasn't the Hudson, but yeah, it struck us both. as really funny that it was an off-road vehicle that first had the term muscle car attached to it.
1: So does that predate the GTO? So is it earlier than '64?
3: No, actually, I believe it was 64. Now that you say yeah, that, it seems like she said in her reading, it said, I think it was 1964 for that Jeep. So it would be fun to kind of track that down and see, you know, who wrote that, why they write it, etc.
0: If we extended the borders, I mean, then you can put the Jensen Interceptor in there and things of that ilk they're not american muscle cars but they have american muscle car dna
1: i think that's okay because they have either small block or big block chevys or fords powering them so i'm okay with that as a muscle car suggestion we talked about on the italian episode the isos it's the same thing there's a bunch of these italian coach builders that did american engines the pantera is not a muscle car it's a sports car so that's off the table right that doesn't qualify but you're right there are some european and even japanese cars that i think fit in Into the Malays era, and we'll probably talk about those as we go along. But I want to make sure there aren't any other exceptions. There's a few I think we can immediately take off the table. If we go outside of 1982, that's the GNX Grand National, the WS6, the Viper, pretty much any Corvette.
4: Quick correction on that, because the WS6 actually existed back in the 70s era of the Pontiacs as well. The WS6 was a trim option that had existed since the second gen of it. I don't think they made any first gen, but I know from the second gen on they did.
3: And remember too, WS6, really all it was was a handling package to give you what they wanted to call the, the Gymkhana experience. That right. was the whole point of the WSX. 6 There was no power increase at all. It was just all chassis. So yeah. I don't know if you want to go there.
0: If we're going to nix the GNX, are we going to nix the Trans Am GTA, the Turbo V6 with the, I guess the, the same motor in the GNX and all that?
3: If we're going to nix the Grand National, do we also have to throw out Monte Carlo SS and the Grand Prix? Okay. I knew you would know if anybody- he has know, one, you. that's why. Yes. Let me just push that a little further. If we're going to kill Grand National, kill Monte Carlo, kill Grand Prix, Oldsmobile Cutlass.
4: So that's basically killing the whole G-Body platform.
3: But look what it brings and this is up to y'all because we're pushing kind of far now because I'm going to bring up a car that is one of my personal favorite you guys will laugh I know Lumina Z34 and its little brother the Cavalier Z34 Z24 but in the 90s those were considered the muscle cars that was it unless you wanted to talk about your old Guards, Camaro, Mustang, Firebird, etc. I think we need to
0: pull Don's card now. I think, <laughs> I think he he has disqualified himself from
5: the discussion. We're like a bunch of medieval scholars arguing about when the Dark Ages end. I mean, oh,
4: yeah.
5: <laughs> I mean, some of these cars, like they're just too good. Like the '80s made some good cars. Like yeah. this, I think this is about the audio industry was kind of on its knees. They're in a big transition what are some of those diamonds in the rough? What are some of those things that maybe with a little modern technology and assuming you don't live in California, you can turn into something that's really cool and fun.
1: That's what we sort of have to figure out. And we keep dancing around these cars that are still sort of popular, right? So if you look at the third gen Camaro, like the IROC, the Firebird's not too far off. We need to find something a little bit different. I just wanted to know where we taper things off and where the blend line is. And I think we're still safe, even if we go up to about 85, if we go outside of our stated boundary.
0: I think we're getting too much in the weeds. I think we nix the Camaro, the Mustang, the Corvette, and maybe the Charger, and just everything else is a free-for-all. If you choose the Chevelle or whatever, okay, that's cool, but I think we leave them in. Why
5: not? You won't find any affordable examples, but... I take events to the Chevelle comment, (laughs) but... The Chevelle Laguna? good NASCAR pedigree. I mean,
3: look at the Laguna S3. That was a hell of a car. It really was. The styling, it had muscle for the day. Come on, it's a flashy time. You know, I think the Laguna is a great one, but you're right. Where do we draw that line?
2: I think if you go with the lesser versions of the car, the performance vehicles, like going with the Cutlass instead of necessarily going with the 442, going with the Buick Regal versus the GNX, the lower models, because that's going to fit the budget anyway.
4: Yeah. If we're going to take some of the bigger names that you were mentioning take one that's a less known car, and GTO as an example. If you get into like the earlier ones before the judge and everything, the mid '60s, and a lot of the guys would find a Tempest or a Le Mans and make a GTO clone out of them. I, and that's yeah. a great way for guys that don't have the money to go find a numbers matching GTO. You go find the same platform basically and build the car you want
6: agreeing all wholeheartedly with Dan's sentiment there that especially when you buy one of those less than, you know, not the GTO, but it is the La the Tempest. There's no guilt. You're not going to feel bad if you cut it up to make something fit. I see muscle cars like kind of two factions. There's guys who restore and go for period correct. and And that's what they like. And then there's people who look at it as this is something to be made better and faster. So from the better and faster camp, there's no penalty to taking something pedestrian and and moving it.
1: So I think that goes both ways. And that's a really great point, Andrew, in that you can make a malaise car into a muscle car And you can probably take a muscle car and make it a malaise car, adding luxury, adding other creature comforts, adding other things to it that maybe they were devoid of when they were built because they were more sporty. Right. So I think this conversation ebbs and flows in both directions, depending on where you want to take it.
4: That already exists in a sense for the fact that a lot of those muscle cars would come without A.C., so there's companies for the past 20 years that have been making aftermarket AC to put in there. So you could take that muscle car and go for a trip during the summer and not sweat your brains out. That
1: power steering, power brakes, all sorts of other stuff mm-hmm. that came yeah. on the luxury cars that didn't exist on the muscle cars. I think it goes both ways. Kind of getting into the 80s stuff, we've transitioned from carburetors
2: to fuel injection. The cutoff might be just carbureted cars if you want to have a cutoff point. But again, it all is going to be based on budgets. Eric suggested we I don't know what our limits are budget wise for an entry level car. That's another thing we need to determine.
5: If it's expensive, it's not malaise. <laughs> 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 if you have to ask, it's not a malaise.
2: <laughs> You'd be surprised. I just saw an auction: flax body Cobra going for seventy grand. Yeah, I, can't, I mean that's no power. You could get a Corvette for forty grand that blows it away, yeah, and it makes yeah. no sense. So. It depends on what the people want. Some of these people are so fixated on the IROCs and the certain vehicles, they're willing to pay more money for them.
3: There's another vehicle that just kind of popped in my head while you're talking about that Foxbody Cobra, the 93 Cobra. Impala popped back as a, as a full-blown, hyped-out Caprice, 260 horsepower. For its day, it was really, really amazing. In fact, I remember Car & Driver, Motor Trend, one of the two, they compared the S500 Mercedes against the impala ss 1995 it, it was an amazing comparison because here you had the high brown mercedes with all the luxury and all that crap but it's still a fast car and then you had the impala which very fast car with yeah kind of luxurious if you want to call it that i hate to say it the impala mopped the floor with that mercedes that was one of those things they almost didn't want to publish it because they didn't want to upset mercedes
4: and that particular Impala was only made 94 to 96, and the SS Callaway version of it actually came with a six-speed manual, which I've always wanted to acquire one of those myself.
5: I know Mercedes S500s and Impalas get cross-shopped a lot, so I'm sure it was really concerning <laughs> for Mercedes, that comparison.
1: So what I want to do is pull this back a little bit, because Rob touched on something really important, and actually so did Mark, which is two sides of the last part of our shopping criteria. One is looking at those lesser models or the, the cousin of, or as Don likes to put it in other episodes, the sister to certain vehicles, maybe under a different name with different sheet metal, you could get a variant of the GTO. As an example, the Olds Rally 350, which is mm-hmm. basically a GTO judge that nobody... Pays attention to. So those are considerations we need to make. But on the other side, Mark hit on LS swap the world. And I know this speaks to Andrew, who's been pretty quiet this whole time, kind of waiting patiently, is Resto mods, swap cars, EV swaps. I think all of this stuff counts. When we're talking about the muscle and malaise collector, what do they want to do with these cars? Especially if you're buying a malaise car for like five grand, it's going to need some love. What do you want to do with it? So Andrew, let's get your thoughts on that.
6: I was going to say built not bar, right? I mean, if you're on a budget and you want something cool, Who cares what it's called? Who cares what model or trim it is and what rich guys will pay for it? Buy the cleanest example of something that you can find that has all the trim there that you're not going to have to spend a lot of money piecing back together. But if it's an A body, it's a G body, it's a whatever, you're going to find parts for it. I was going to say 1983, first year of the Fox body, all those parts go back on it. You have a blank canvas is the way I look at these cars. They aren't terribly exciting as they came for all the reasons that were mentioned, but they're all just as capable of being modded out and built. To Eric's point about not having something like at every car show, I spent a couple of years dreaming of LS swapping a Volvo 240, which is just a shoebox on wheels. But if it's done clean and and you get the right wheels, the right suspension, I mean, it could be a hell of a lot of fun. Who cares what it does performance wise? It'll be too fast for anybody sane, you know. So that's my take. Buy them and build them.
3: The nice thing is you'll be safe in that car. <laughs> Right. And I'll send you, you an Argyle sweater. Yeah, there you
5: go. Go undercover. What about the Mustang 2? You can't argue that that was a, like... A turd? Well, yeah, it was a turd. <laughs> but if you're going to be interesting, right? They had the Cobra version. Like, could be fun. I mean, if you, obviously, you'd have to fix it, modify it.
1: And so, Mark, I will see your Mustang 2 looking for alternatives now. I will pit it against... The AMC Concorde.
5: I mean, it depends on what direction you want to go, right? So if we're going on where Andrew was talking about, where, you know, you're going to build out a muscle car, you're just looking for a platform or a canvas. If you're looking to show up at Cars and Coffee with just something that people just haven't seen before, and that you kind of restore and build out mechanically just to make it honestly, I would say more safe. There's a bunch of different things to work with there, especially from AMC. And so part of that is if you're going down the cars and coffee route, then you're also looking at volume and how many were made. So if you look at like a King Cobra or something, they only ever made 4,000 of them. And because it was so hated, there's probably, I don't know, 27 on the road today. <laughs> and, you know, so, so there is that angle to play. And on the AMC side, they also did a bunch of interesting stuff. Somebody brought it up earlier. I think it was Don, right? The automotive manufacturers decided this wasn't a grassroots car culture thing. They just decided because we can't make cars fast anymore, we're going to try and make them cool by pairing them with luxury brands. And so you have like the Pierre Cardin AMC Javelin, you have a Gucci edition Cadillac Seville, an Oleg Kasani AMC Matador.
1: There is never anything cool about the Matador. Okay. That's true. <laughs> that's
5: I, mean, I have to admit that's true. But you have the Levi's Denim Gremlin. I mean, that was on my list. Like, when was the last time you saw a Levi's Denim Gremlin? Like, that's just kind of cool.
3: Going to Gremlin, you had a Gremlin with a 304 V8 from the factory. And if That wasn't good enough. There was a dealership in Arizona. I think it was Randall AMC. They would shoehorn in the Matador 401. Wow. And you talk about a little dynamo of a car.
5: Sounds like death on wheels.
3: That was it. But now you're talking kind of a Yanko edition for AMC because it was a dealer specialty. It's like the Celine of AMC. So I don't know if that would even qualify for this.
1: I think it would, but there's also an AMX edition if we're going to go down the gremlin road, right? Yes,
3: the AMX, that was uh, the Corvette's competitor because it was the only two-seat sports car in America and it was half the
1: price. Well, I'm not talking about the Javelin. They had AMX edition other AMC vehicles.
2: Yeah, later on in the 70s, they, they brought the AMX name back. Okay, so it was like a trim
1: package then. Yeah. That goes exactly back to what Mark was saying. The Javelin is definitely on my list. I love the way it looks. It's got these kind of funky haunches, almost like wide body mm-hmm. flares. It's a, you're not sure if it's. has like a 71 Mach 1 or what it is when it's coming at you, especially in the AMX guys with the spoiler and the rally wheels and all that kind of stuff. I think those cars are pretty cool. And Brad, so does this count towards the drinking game? AMC, is that like Mopar adjacent or do they stand alone? Uh, I think they stand alone. All right, good. (laughs) I'm going to drink for it anyway.
3: Chrysler bought AMC in 87. Budget. And here we are talking AMC, which of course owned Jeep. That's the only reason Chrysler bought it was for the Jeep brand.
2: AMC actually does fit
1: the budget we're talking about too. You can get a lot of performance. Yeah. People don't usually look for those. A hundred percent. And there's quite a yeah. few of these. So let's stay on the AMC path for just a moment before we deviate. So we talked about the Javelin. We talked about the Gremlin. We, I mentioned the Concorde, which looks a lot like the Mustang 2. And if you dress it up a little bit, it's a great alternative to Bob's point, not very well known. Another one that came up on my list as a potential muscle car conversion is the AMC Ambassador 990. Bigger car lines up with one of my other suggestions, but if you kind of take a look at it, you could do something with it. I think it's kind of neat if you're looking for a bit of a land cruiser that you could shove a big motor under the hood.
5: I think that's an interesting category for the group to get into because then you start looking at some of the Cadillac Eldorados, Mm -hmm. and and that whole kind of category of just land yacht, like just embrace the rolling couch. And if you want to drive a couch, then you have some really interesting options that come out of this era.
1: But that's the other side of the malaise era. They're not all sports cars, let's say. They're the Luxo boats.
5: Me being the
3: Lincoln guy here, the Mark 3, the Mark 4, the Mark 5. All of those were equipped with 460s. The Mark V had it for one year as an option against the 400, which was a pig. But it was a great cruiser. I'll tell you, you get on any of those cars, they move. They really, really can cook because of that big block. Tons and tons of torque. Look at those Oldsmobiles and those Buicks with the 455s. You think grandpa going to church in the Oldsmobile 98 with a 455? That man could get there in five seconds flat because that thing was just, uh uh-oh, a rocket. But that's why it was sheer torque. Well, and the funny thing is, when you talk about 1978, the quickest, fastest American production car, Dan, you'll appreciate this. It was the Dodge Lil Red Express. Oh, you beat me yeah. to it. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to. The manufacturer, at least Chrysler, figured out, hey, guys, did you know that the truck doesn't have to meet the emissions requirements, the safety requirements, et cetera, that the car does? They're very lightweight. If we throw our 360 in there with a few little tune-ups, holy cow, we'll have a tire smoker for days. That was their little trick. And of course, here you are with this little farm implement and you're burning Corvettes transams all day long with a pickup. It was hugely embarrassing. The trick was you had to be a good driver because all that power to a rear end with no weight on it. Yeah. That thing just wanted to burn rubber for days. Dan, am I wrong? You're the pickup guy here. I mean, come on.
4: That was definitely on my list of vehicles to mention. And with any truck, because there's no weight on the rear of them, if you don't know what you're doing, you see all the videos of the Mustangs you know, going through the medians and hitting people on the sidewalks. It would have been way worse if Cars and Coffee existed back in the 70s when the Little Red Express was there. Yeah.
3: yeah. And going back to the pickup conversation of, hey, guys, guess what? If we build a pickup with a really big motor, we don't have to meet emission standards. We don't have to meet safety standards standard we can have a really fast truck that we can decorate out and make look really really cool it was the same thing with those luxo barges look we're catering to the guys who can afford a fifteen thousand dollar coupe to you know tool around in and look important they can be frank cannon for a day they can afford that 460 they can afford the 455 they can afford the 472s they can afford the 500s they can afford all those big luxury liner engines you know, what's more fun than finding a lightweight matador or whatever and pulling out a big 440, 460, 500 and throwing it in there?
1: I want to revisit AMC here in a little bit, but I do want to go back to something that. Mark mentioned earlier, and he he hit something that I had on my list, when we mentioned Chevelle, he brought up the Laguna version of the Chevelle, again, talking about these lesser known models, lesser known trim packages. I agree with you, Mark, that was on my list as well.
5: That particular model actually came on my radar a few years ago when Chevy, they did a Laguna at SEMA, and they were doing it as an advertisement for their crate engine business. And they had, I think it was a 74 Chevelle Laguna resto modded and built out. And that thing just looked so cool. Uh And like nothing that you see, which, you know, made me kind of look into it a little more. I just thought it was super cool. And there, I mean, there are some, if you're looking at kind of racing pedigree, you know, this was still the before times in NASCAR. And, you know, there's a little more correlation between these models and what was raced than, you know, in the later years when they totally switched everything around.
1: But since you brought up General Motors, I wanted to go back to another John DeLorean special, not the GTO. I want to talk about the Vega.
4: Here's the thing about the Vega. I love the Vegas. They are hard as can be to find anymore because all the quarter mile guys realize, Hey, the V8s in them, they're lightweight. You can get down the quarter mile real quick with them. Unfortunately, because back when they were built, a lot of people didn't like them. They were kind of thrown to the side and many of them wound up in scrapyards and stuff. So I would say even though they're a less known muscle car, they're one of the harder to find ones right now for like the GMs.
1: But I found a solution to that problem
4: because
1: in watching shows like Rust Valley Restorers and learning about the Canadian versions of GM cars that can be imported into this country very easily because the statute of limitations on, you know, different models doesn't really exist at this point. You could actually get a Pontiac version known as the Astra, not the Astra as in like the Vauxhall Astra. It's A-S-T-R-E. It's the same car different badges in the same way that did the Bonneville as the Parisienne. And they had all these other names, kind of more European sounding names for all these GM products once you crossed our border to the north of us. So I looked at that and went, okay, cool. But also in the shadows is the Monza, right? You could go in that direction mm-hmm. as well.
3: I thought the Astro was an American car. I thought that was also available here in the USA.
1: It was sold here too, but I looked it up and a lot of the sales numbers were higher in Canada, just like the Parisienne and, and a bunch of others.
3: Yeah, Canadians are big Pontiac people. Yeah, they are. Yeah, I think the Vega could be a good one. When DeLorean was faced with Vega, he wanted to make it a sort of American BMW. General Motors just didn't want to have anything to do with it. They just wanted to put out a quick, dirty efficient little car. The main problem with those cars, if I remember correctly, was their engines would literally have trouble with the aluminum and they would self-destruct. Just the metallurgy would give out on those cars. Another problem that they had was a huge problem with suspensions. Literally, wheels were falling off the car. I mean, this is not good stuff. By design, I think they were fabulous. And when you brought out the Cosworth, that was another John DeLorean special. He was the one who actually went over there and spoke to those people to build the heads and engineer a hot rod vega now you're talking about a serious collector car i mean these cars they were limited production they were reasonably quick for what they were somebody brought up the mustang 2 earlier today or early on this conversation and you know if you want a competitor for mustang 2 cobra I think the Vega Cosworth absolutely outshines the Mustang, and I'm a Ford guy, but that Cosworth Vega was something else. It was a fantastic little car. And again, on the collector market, just because they're rare, just because there's not many of them, and because they have that performance pedigree with you know European influence, that is a fantastic car. And they're not overly expensive, even in mint condition. They're really, really not.
1: So since you went there and you're talking about European influences, do you consider the Capri not the Fox body Capri, the German Ford Capri, a muscle car or a sports car?
3: No, I would consider it a sporty car. Absolutely. I love the Capri. The original Capri's 69. I think was the first one that they built turned into a hatchback somewhere in the mid seventies. And then at some point it got turned into a Mustang for Mercury, which, you know, that's a whole different conversation, but the original European version of it, I don't think they're muscle cars, but I think they're sporty cars. And they were designed by one of the original Mustang designers, europe wanted a mustang and that was going to be capri it didn't do anywhere near as well as the american mustang did but it did very well in, in giving americans an idea of hey wait a minute we could have a sporty little compact fun little car but no I'd, i don't think it'd be fair to compare that as a muscle car not at all
2: Ford products again mercury cougar and ford thunderbird okay and, and maybe like even toward the buick riviera we're almost transitioning a little bit bigger car but still lots of performance. And I think that probably would fit into our category too.
3: If we're going to throw Ford under the bus there, just talk about them. I'm surprised nobody's brought up Gran Torino just yet. And I'm surprised nobody's brought up Fairlane. I know Fairlane kind of goes back to the 60s with the 390s and the 427s. In terms of off the radar, both of those cars are fantastic first-time cars because they are kind of off the radar. And let's face it, when it comes to those muscle cars, when it comes to those performance cars, for some reason... Chevy always outshines Ford and that pushes their values up a little bit usually, not always, but usually and when you talk about Gran Torino or you talk about Fairlane, you can get a really nice bargain muscle car that again, when you pull up to a Cars and Coffee once you get over the Starsky and Hutch jokes, you know, they're a damn nice car
4: So I was going to add one to the European influence, it's still it's Blackhawk, you know, unfortunately not oh. I afford that, but oh. I gotta throw it out <laughs> oh. The Elvis car
3: now you're talking my
1: language. What have you done? What have you I, I done? I knew I liked you, Dan. I knew I liked
3: you. you he know?
1: opened Pandora's box.
3: It's party time, boys. Aww. And Eric, we can bring the Canadians in because most of their cars were built on a Pontiac chassis. Yeah, Just yeah. saying. They
1: were. So, first of all, I'm going to ignore the stutz comment because that's just going to get us into trouble. But there are some undervalued, underappreciated Fords. And one of them that came to mind in doing some additional research on this was the Maverick. Not to be confused with the new pickup truck, but again, going back to this javelin, Vega, yeah. Monza kind of style of car that you shoehorn a 302 in that and give it a little bit more oomph. And suddenly you've mm-hmm. got this muscular vehicle.
3: And if you wanted to go a little classier, you could always go with the Comet, which was Mercury's sister product to the Ford Maverick. I don't know that they, they didn't, but I don't know that they ever had something like the Grabber. But it was the same basic formula, a little 302. You could even get a four-speed with those cars.
1: So was that the same marketing that they used for the Bobcat? Oh, it's the Pinto's more upscale version.
3: I <laughs> <laughs> got <girl's> sweaters, baby. <laughs> Brad, take a drink just from your big bottle so we cheer up a little bit over here, will you? (laughs) There we go. That's what I'm talking about.
5: You know, I'm not a Maverick fan. I struggle. I really do. I prefer the Clippers myself. I don't see the lines on the outside. The interior is bad even for its time. That's saying something.
1: It is, (sighs) and... Again, the Javelin is a sexier car if we're going to go <laughs> really going to go there. Yes. But the, the Maverick, it has potential because... Juno Sequin. Yeah, Juno You're right. And what I see in it is sort of like they liked what they were doing with the Capri and that they found a way to make it worse because it has that sort of Capri look to it, especially when you're looking at the side glass it has mm-hmm. the, the way it kicks back. Yeah. It's yeah. just, yeah. it's sort of there. And those, the round head lights. Capri's ugly sister. To use a Donism. Yes. But you know, if you look at her with the right light on the prairie. With you the drink enough. Blowing, yeah. When it's last yeah.
3: fall, <laughs> you're at the bar. You need to take them Just somewhere. keep drinking. It gets easier. You'll love Maverick after a few of those big bottles like Brad has. You'll love it.
1: That goes just with the whole period though. They're all sort of slightly terrible. Right. But you got to look at it for the potential. I see this as like we were talking about. You shoehorn a Coyote in this, and suddenly this is an exciting car. Mm-hmm. Well, then remember too, not
3: that I don't love the Coyote. Believe me, I do. I think that's a fantastic engine. But in this day and age, you don't need that much motor. You really don't. There are so many great four-cylinder turbos, so many great V6s out there right now that are spinning 400 horsepower.
4: Yeah. When I was... Stationed out in New Mexico, one of the guys I worked with had a '60s Mercury Cougar. They wanted to put in a 302 out of a Fox body into it, and then to give it a little bit extra pep, he found one of the Paxman superchargers that bolted right on to where it didn't even show from above the hood. It was a nice peppy older car, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was running skinny 14-inch tires, so it burned the tires off of it every day. But it was fun to take out and ride around in.
5: If you're looking at that kind of Andrew's canvas perspective, you know, I mean the Panther chassis launched at the end of the malaise era.
1: Did it really? Well, was that the LTD at that point?
5: Or was that a different
1: chassis? That was the LTD.
5: LTD, Mercury Marquis in 79 through those years. And you get some two doors. If I had more space, not to go backwards, but I like the idea of a two-door land yacht. It's it's just so obscene. It's just ridiculous that I need a 24-foot long car with two doors. It's kind of amazing it's like everything that was right about america and and just on four
6: wheels what that reminded me of was just why are muscle cars cool it's because they don't look like anything that you can buy today so if you have something like you said 22 feet long with seven foot long Mm -hmm. doors you can't buy that anymore and so you have a completely different car experience by whether it's fast or not if it runs it's just automatically something that again you could drive home and not see anything like it all day long so I'd ask, why is the first time buyer interested in a muscle car, whether it's malaise or classic? Maybe everyone falls in love with the classic things. I'm sitting with a replica of a Shelby Cobra in my garage. So like I know about going after the poster child or whatever, 72 Eldorado I saw on the road today. I couldn't help but stare because those lines, those fins, the taillights are all in your face. That doesn't happen anymore. Everything today is built for fuel economy and and building 50,000 mm-hmm. of them. If it tickles your fancy, that's, I think, what's more important than is it a special edition? Again, I would go for something that's as complete and mechanically sound as possible for the first-time collector and then enjoy it.
4: For any of those big land yacht two-door cars, any first-time buyers, one of the things I'm going to recommend is check the door hinge bushings because those doors weighing a million pounds would wear out those bushings. And it's just one of those things It's inevitable to happen. And if you're parking downhill Hold the handle when you open it, because if not, it's going to go and it's going to rock the whole car to the side. Sound advice. Do they
5: weigh a million pounds? There was no side impact crash testing. but <laughs> Well, you didn't need
1: it because they were all made out of lead.
5: And real steel.
1: It's like hitting the Brinks truck. I mean, come on.
3: I'm going to go out on a limb here a little bit. I don't know about you guys, but for some reason, thanks to Facebook and thanks to the magazine, a lot of my friends these days are in their 20s and early 30s. And I got to tell you, it's absolutely amazing talking to some of these guys because I'm a member of four or five Lincoln Mark forums. Uh, and it's amazing how many of those guys are in their 20s and in their 30s. And they are digging these Lincoln Mark three, four, five. The 6 is kind of a lost child, but it has its own cult following. And then there's the 7, which... Forget about it. The 7 was probably the best car that Ford ever built. Here nor there, what amazes me, and, and you know, in my driveway, you know, Andrew, you brought up your Cobra. I'm going to see your Cobra, and I'm going to match it with a 79 Caprice Classic, two-tone brown with a velour <laughs> yeah. interior and plush carpeting. I seriously have it. It's sitting in my driveway. It's my godfather's car. I bought it brand new. I inherited it. I've loved it ever since I was a little kid. Yeah. It's slower than anything. It is literally, I, I, I've got a Fiat that I think could probably it any day of the week
6: <laughs> again it's, it's a factory five but i've taken this roadster to a few car shows i'll park and leave it and people look at it and everything like that and they ask questions or whatever but i geek out over like a mint condition pontiac fierro the gt yeah. and i'm like because again where do you see it i know mm-hmm. my replica is number seven thousand something so there's fifteen thousand of them out there now but how many legitimate period correct good condition Fieros are there can't be that many
0: they didn't come in good condition from the factory so i think the answer to that is zero yeah and see brad has a
3: mark 8 brad is turning me on right there
6: that that's right was a hell of a car in its day incredible car mn12 platform was my first car i had an 89 thunderbird sc nice do you have five speed or the automatic five speed nice very very cool
3: he used to autocross it too. He used to.
6: I did.
5: That's it. how. That's how I met Eric. I Learned to drive in my dad's Mark Eight. Isn't
3: that kind of a big car to be autocrossing though? The Thunderbird. Yeah. Very. Okay. All We're right. big
0: guys, Don. That's right. That's true. Big guys drive big cars.
3: I can fit with you, but and maybe this is off track. You've got a Cobra replica. I've always wanted a 356 Speedster replica, but growing up, replicas were kind of shunned. You didn't have those unless you were a cheap, poor bastard who couldn't afford anything. And (laughs) we're going to make fun of you because we can. So I always kind of avoided it, but I've noticed in recent years, and maybe the quality too has gone up so well that that's what's forgiven them. Having a Cobra replica, having a Porsche replica, having... Even just a kit car that's, you know, out of some guy's head that he designed yeah. over a something chassis, that's suddenly now very cool. Right. That's actually okay. Remember it the, the yeah. TV show Hardcastle and McCormick? The Coyote. The coyote X. Yeah. Yeah, which was, if I'm not mistaken, I was designed to look like a McLaren race car. I remember watching that show. I love that show. I was young. But I remember my dad and I remember all of his friends. Oh, it's just a VW. It's just a
6: blah, blah, blah. But
3: I kept thinking, I don't care about how slow or how fast it is.
6: It looks so
3: cool.
6: There's something to say, like, if you want to take a fiberglass body and put it on a Fiero or a VW Bug, like you said, that's not all that special. I mean, but a modern kit car is a scratch-built tube chassis with Fox body or SN95 suspension. Serious cars. And that's why I said my outlook on this topic would be basically like anything's a kit car if you look at it right that might be a really good piece of advice,
3: you know, because one nice thing about those kit cars too, even the Coyote as cheesy as it may have been back in the eighties. Okay. So it was built on a 69 VW Beetle. Guess what guys, you don't have to smog it because it's on a 69 VW Beetle. So if you can figure out how to engineer a little more horsepower out of that, Oh, do I hear Ecotech? Do I hear EcoBoost? Yep. Do I hear yep. those four cylinder turbos that are being yep. made today? DJ20. Oh my God, what that little Coyote yep. could do today. And you don't have to smog it. You don't have to do anything with it because it was built in 69 or whenever the Beatles platform was built.
1: What was that other kit car that was really popular in the late 70s, early 80s that sort of looked like a Duesenberg? I used to call it as a kid, like the Cruella DeVille Mobile. They had the Clinet and they had the Excalibur. That's it, the Excalibur.
3: Yeah, yeah Matt Houston drove one, remember? <laughs> Sorry, I had to bring him up
1: again. Since we brought up Luxo Boats, we talked about kit cars. I want to go back to Mark again because I think he's right. We could probably wax poetic about about the kind of like Cadillac Brougham and how it could tow 11,000 pounds and all this awesome stuff and, and the land out top that comes with it. But there's a compromise car. And I said we were going to revisit AMC again. So I want to throw out for your consideration the AMC Rebel.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh,
3: totally. Absolutely.
2: That was a car that was really under the radar back then. I mean, it was competing against the uh, Chargers and G body GM cars. That
1: was definitely a a performer. And it fits Mark's recipe. It's a big car, two doors, big motor. Are you sure it's a yacht or are you sure it's a muscle car? Is it malaise? I think it checks all three boxes. This thing is enormous.
3: Eric, there are classifications. There's yacht, there's super yacht, and there's mega yacht. So I, I think the Rebel is definitely a yacht. OK, your Mark Fives, your Mark Fours, that's a super yacht. The mega yacht, of course, is the stuts, which you're not allowing us to talk about.
1: No, <laughs> no. Again, in the AMC, there's so many things. There's a lot of bad, but there's a lot of good. And I think that's the brand that has just kind of been forgotten because the, it got absorbed into Chrysler years mm-hmm. later. That people don't think about it as being a front-running American brand. There's a couple other cars I want to mention in that camp kind of as we go along, but I want to stay on this train of thought because Rob brought up a car, the Buick Riviera. The Yeah, <laughs> I love the Bowtail Riviera. That being said, so does everybody else. But there's another vehicle much like the Rebel, especially in its, its aesthetic, which is the underappreciated and often forgotten Buick Wildcat.
3: Yes. A Wildcat. That was a land yacht. <laughs> It was. Is
1: that a mega yacht, Don?
3: Yeah, I think that's a mega yacht. Yeah, I think that's a mega yacht.
1: And my cousin's dad had one. And I tell you what, it was a two-car garage, you know, nose to tail two-car. It took up every inch of that two-car garage. But Uh the hard top, sort of a fastback, had that Riviera look to it. His was red with a black interior. Really cool car. Every time we go over, there, you would be like, ah, one of these days I want to fix this thing. If I recall, that had a big block in it too. So there's a lot of power buried in some of these cars too. Like your point, you just look at it and go, yeah, look at that brick on wheel. You know, what am I supposed to do with this yacht? But I think you can do a lot with it. And it circles back to the point earlier, Dan was saying, you know, the horsepower numbers are 18% or 10% lower than what they actually are in the dyno, but 10% of 180 let's do the math. We're still under 200 horsepower, but you're still looking at 6.6 liters of Detroit iron in a Trans Am as an example. So how much power is actually buried in that motor? A thousand horsepower without turbos, without anything with the proper build.
3: And and let's remember, Eric, horsepower is how hard you hit the wall. Torque is how far you push the wall. And that's really what it's all about. And when you bring in the 6.6 back into it, The 6.6 only had, if I remember correctly, it was either 190 or 200 horsepower. It, It was very anemic for those late 70s. But for those late 70s, that was damn good power. But it was in the torque. That was where that 400 had a lot of gumption. So off the line, it could really go, but you're right. The 400 had more potential than almost any other engine in the day.
2: The thing about the 400 engine was you could take parts from prior year cars, the heads, you could change all these things around, other things that you could put together to build that engine. Even though it was a late 70s model, you could make it like an early super duty motor if you had the right part.
3: When GTO first was introduced to the media, it didn't do well you know, Road and Tracker, Motor Trend, one of the two did tests with it and the performance was not that great. It was kind of poo-pooed in the report. Jim Wangers, the marketing guy, as well as John DeLorean, and there was one of the guy involved in this little trickery that they did, but they grabbed the red car. It was a red GTO. They pulled the 389 out and they just put in a 421 because the 421 and the 389 visually look exactly the same. And that goes to what you're saying about the heads and all the interchangeability of those cars. It was really pretty fascinating what they could do with those
4: cars. You didn't mention the 455 that also came out them in the late 70s, which was their big block, which was some point some liter engine. We don't mention those, Dan, because they make us cry because they still
1: only make 200 horsepower with more displacement the torque it's got tractor torque
3: yeah that's a chef's cam swap away the last 455 though for trans am at least was 76 that was the last time that they did trans am in fact, I might even be wrong about that. It might have been 75, but I think it was 76 that they had that. It was that.
2: 76. You're right. It was 76? It
3: 76. 76. Yes. Yeah. And that, and that for 76, come on. You're still putting out a 455. Who else was doing that? Nobody.
2: You had the 455 and be up through 75 as well. Right. They used that bigger engine because they had to make up for the lack of power in the, the smaller motors. That was the key thing about the Malays period then.
5: Wasn't yeah. it the Trans Am 455? I mean, it was making good power up through 75. It was like the last it was. one. Like the 74, 455 made almost 300 horse. If you have the Super Duty yeah. model,
2: that's true. But the, the lesser ones didn't have as much power.
3: You still had a 455. I yeah. mean, my God. It's incredible to me to think in those mid-70s in a Trans Am, They're putting out the 455s that that to me, you know, Ford had the 460, Chrysler had the 440. You know, Brad, you've got a picture of a Cordoba up there. And I'm really glad because I don't want to go there now unless you guys want to.
0: I want to say that my grandmother had a Cordoba. And she used to race people from traffic light to traffic light all the time. Pretty slow race.
3: I'll tell you, you know, if you knew how to use them, they weren't all that bad. I had an aunt who had a Cordoba, and she also had a Magnum, and she was a drag racer. And I'll tell you, that girl could really lay it down with those two beasts, but you had to know how to use them. And let's face it, you probably couldn't do what you were doing much with Straight from the Factory. You had to do a few tricks to it. Mm -hmm. But they could move, but... Somebody brought up these limited editions. What about the Dodge Magnum XE and what would GT? And it was 1978 and 1979. And that was all they built. And the whole reason for it was aerodynamics for NASCAR because that Cordoba and the Dodge Charger, which was based on the Cordoba. Look at that nose. There's nothing aerodynamic about that nose. So when you put it on a NASCAR circuit, it's fighting wind the whole time it's out there. The Magnum had a little bit more of that laid back look on that front end to try to help the air go over it. It also had a higher rear end to help downforce. And the Magnum was hugely underrated. But the biggest engine was a 400. And that was only in 1978. 1979, the biggest was a 360. And it was a 360 police interceptor, which was respectable. Where they found the 360 interceptor was a better performing magnum, was the 360 weighed less than the 400, and yet it produced almost as much power as the 400. So there was kind of a nice trade off, but you didn't have that bragging rights of I've got a 400 6.6 liter. No, now you're down to what is a 360? I don't know, it'd be 5.9 liter. Tremendous car.
1: I think you guys are right. I feel like the Malaise era is riddled with experimentation. Yes. We're trying new safety things. We're trying new emissions things. You know, are we doing mechanical Fuel injection, are we doing throttle body? Are we staying with carburetors? Are we doing luxury? It's all this hokey pokey and it lasted for like forever. And then what people forget is during the malaise era, the K cars were also born because we started to shift into the compact market at the same time because the United States was the only one still building these big cars, whereas the Europeans had shifted to the compacts and subcompacts. I do want to talk about the K cars a little bit, only because you brought them up, Don, at the beginning. And you're right. Oh, blame me.
4: Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Always. Your fault, Don.
1: You mentioned the 2.2 liter turbo charger, which shared the name and that's about it with the original charger, but it was the Daytona, the charger, the laser. They had 16 names for this thing, but you also had Shelby getting his hands in this just like he did with the Omni creating yes. GLHS versions of those cars. So sort of muscly, but sports yeah. cars, I'm not sure what to yep. classify them as but interesting, just the same. I know it's now the drinking game. If I mention a Dodge product, so here we go. I like the Daytona IROC RT. They came later, the much wider car where they finally sort of got it right before they said, okay, we're done completely. That's another car, despite it being front wheel drive, would have loved to have that been rear wheel drive, would have been a great candidate in today's world of hack and slash type of car, maybe tub the rear out, make it rear wheel drive put something in there. Now you got this cool looking body with a really, Mm -hmm. really neat underpinnings.
4: Downfall to that is during that transition, they were starting to make a lot of the cars unibodies and a lot of the unibodies stuff won't hold up to the power.
3: Remember too, when the IROC came out for Chrysler, not Chevy, when the Daytona IROC came out, the first ones still had the flippy headlights. The second generations had these oval open headlights. Those are the super, super rare ones. And nobody knows what they are outside of the Chrysler world. But those things were absolute demons. And to your point about front-wheel drive, the original idea of the IROC RT was all-wheel drive. That last Daytona, they considered very hard, make it an all-wheel drive car. So you have the 2.2-liter the turbo, the intercooler. It was a 222 horsepower beast. It would spank Mustangs. It would scare the hell out of Corvettes all day long. The only Achilles heel was where the piston goes up and meets kind of the top of the head. You need to install an O-ring up there because you're blowing head gaskets all day long on that car. And I don't know what that was, but I just remember everybody I've ever known with the IROC RT had to do an o-ring at the top of the cylinder to alleviate pressure once you did that you had a bulletproof performing car but again front wheel drive but their goal initially was let's do an all-wheel drive let's do a swan song what killed it was it's going to be too expensive to do it and why do that when we have the stealth
5: well i mean we know how that turned out so (laughs) i don't know i'm a fan of the dodge stealth like i mean come on it's cool it's a cool car
3: A very cool car.
5: For a Mitsubishi. Back in the day, I did like the 3000 GT. I'll take anything into the 90s. Just give me half a chance.
1: The K cars are what they are. The Aries is never going to be a muscle car. It doesn't matter what you do to it. Now, if you show up to a Cars and Coffee with a fully restored Aries K car, I mean, I'm going to pat you on the back and say, good for you. Because I don't know the last time I saw one of those.
3: You know, guys, it worked for Ed Rooney. I think it should work for us.
1: Or it's like that Seinfeld episode, John Voight's LeBaron.
3: John Voight's LeBaron. That's right. John Voight had one. Ed Rooney had one. These are the ultimate people that we want to hitch our stars to. You know, we want to hitch to them. Now, you know, you're right, though. When you come with the Omni, the GLHS, even just the GLH, that was a hell of a performer. That early Charger, you're getting into precursors. You're getting into experimentation. You're getting into... What can we do with four cylinders? You know, in that same era, remember Ford had the 2.3 liter with the turbo going in the Thunderbird, going in the Cougar, going in the Mustang. I don't know what GM had going on.
1: There's another Dodge that we've forgotten about. So I got to walk this back a little bit. So if we rewind the clock and go, there's the Dart. I always kind of forget about the Dart and not the 2016 Dart that Brad loves so much. I'm talking about the 60s and 70s Dodge Dart. And there were a lot of cool packages for that. There were some RT packages. There was the Stinger package. I often say the Swinger package. You never know. There was a lot of other things that the Dart came available with and it also came with different motors. And, you know, you see them every once in a while, but they're not as prevalent as some of the other cars that are out there
3: true and they did and you're right they're understated they're underscored they came with some great motors i mean they they could be everything a charger or or a cuda could be no problem but if you really want to get weird i'll get weird with you oh okay oh yeah here we go you ready oh you ready the dodge aspen roadrunner package 1973 1974 baby yeah bring it bring it Stripes galore, bucket seats with some sort of wacky thing in the upholstery going on, a console shift, and this thing couldn't get out of its own way. It made Mustang twos look fantastic. It, it also really had did.
1: that goofy oblong steering wheel, like reminiscent of something French. It was completely terrible interior as well. Oh my
3: gosh! Yeah, they were horrible cars. But Dart has more panache, yeah. more respect than the Valari aspen and certainly that roadrunner and you know again in that same era and i know we're not supposed to go there but pontiac ventura brought out the gto package for 1974 love it or hate it i mean there they were it was the 70s man they were they were trying to relive the old days the golden days and the only way they could do it was with a bunch of stickers (laughs) but you talk about rare And again, going back to what I was saying about all those friends of mine on Facebook who are in their 20s and 30s, they dig this stuff because they're not out there. You pull into a Cars and Coffee with one of those Volari Roadrunners or Aspen Roadrunners. believe me, you're going to get laughed at, but you're also going to get a lot of respect because that car, when was the last time you saw one? They couldn't have built too many of those cars.
1: So another one that they didn't build too many of that speaks to me from a racer perspective hope my racer aficionados here will appreciate this going again in this weird mopar camp if we consider amc in that same village what about the spirit and i bring up the spirit because oh, yeah. lynn st james raced one and you can shove a v8 in that thing that weird looking
3: oh, thing yeah 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 yeah.
1: It's the hatchback sort of shirakori yeah. looking thing yeah I was waiting
3: for Eric to mention the Eagle. Yeah, they had the four-wheel drive at one point. Yeah.
1: Well, that was the Eagle, the
4: off-road. I know, but same body, wasn't it? They're
1: very similar. They're very similar, yes.
4: The Eagle came in a wagon. I had an uncle that it did. when I was a kid.
1: Which is a great segue because this is the high point in wagons.
4: I will agree. Right?
1: Any of these cars that we have talked about thus far is available in an estate or wagon version. So if you're a wagon long roof society nerd like I am, this is where you go. I mean, outside of the brown Volvo 240. This is it, man. This is Nirvana when it comes to,
5: to station wagons. It certainly was when they sold the most wagons because they had not yet invented the minivan. That's right. But I mean the CTSV was peak wagon.
1: It was peak wagon only because you gotta look at the rest of the wagons. I mean, if you're putting it against a Subaru Outback, I mean, yeah, okay. You know, or a I'll jet- take
5: your Eagle sport wagon against the CTSV wagon any day.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I will agree for modern wagons, the CTSV wagon is hands down
6: great.
1: That's a muscle car. I mean, let's be real, right?
6: Yeah. 6.2 liters of pure pain. The, the HSV Commodore has something to say to that CTSV. I'm just gonna put that out there. 100 percent My daily is a Chevy SS. So I, I've been fascinated by the the Holden. Put the LS in any form factor you can name. Two-door, four-door wagon. You if you want it and you want it supercharged, they make it. They had the right idea. Too bad we couldn't get more of them.
3: You know, if we can go back in time a little bit, not to take away from your Holden SS or your AMC, whatever the hell it is you're talking about over there, Eric. Brad has an interesting car behind him there. That is, a, uh, believe, a 68 Ford Country Squire LTD wagon, full size with the wood. And a lot of people didn't know this. You could get those with the 428 and even the 429 if you wanted one. Now, this was a, a funky little era. You guys brought up station wagons. Chevrolet also had the Brookwood, which was also available with something big. I don't want to say 427, but it may have been a 427. Chrysler, of course, had their 440s in the Dodges and the Plymouth. But here are these wagons that in a straight line, God help anything trying to race one of these things. Because again, pure torque all day long. Yeah, they weighed a bit, but they actually didn't weigh all that much. So yeah, isn't it interesting when you go station wagon hunting You can really get some pretty cool muscle cars out of a station wagon just by the engine. And okay, AMC Eric, I don't know much about that little wagon behind Mark, but could you get the 304 or the 401 or any of those muscular AMC engines in there? They did
5: have an inline six. (laughs) that has its own kind of pedigree to it all by itself right
1: that's the same inline six that was used in the jeeps and all that stuff so that's a bulletproof engine so let's not knock that straight six because it is what it is
3: let's talk about Oldsmobile 303 v8 that car dominated nascar for a long time until hudson came out with an inline six that had 10 more horsepower did you just say hudson i did yeah
5: what generation are we in again You got to roll in the Vista
3: Cruiser. Oh, God. Look, right. uh, windows everywhere.
1: You have
2: to remember the translucent roofs on the GM wagons from the late 60s and early 70s. Yeah. They had the little Lexan roof panels. They weren't real glass? Yeah. Oh, wow.
3: Okay.
1: I always thought they were glass. You take a Caprice, also known as the Malibu station wagon. You can make a little hot rod out of mm-hmm. that too, if you want. So there's some options mm-hmm. there in the Malays period.
3: You can get a lot of car in a wagon. You buy a nice long roof. You've got something that shows up at Cars and Coffee with some respect. I don't know about the AMCs, Eric. You might. Good luck. Uh, but you know. <laughs>
1: Let's go across the pond because Brad mentioned it. There are some foreign cars in the malaise area that really do kind of capture the essence of the malaise era. And they're not just the, you know, the muscle derivatives like the ESO and the Jensen and some of the cars we talked about. There's two that come to mind. I'm wondering if you guys can guess what they are. Gordon Keeble. What? Ren and Stempy.
3: Oh, my God. Seriously? Gordon Keeble. It's English. It had a 327 under the hood, four speed. It was from a Corvette. It was incredible. And then, of course, he had the Eso Revolta, which was a sexy little car. looked like a little Maserati.
1: I thought you were talking about some one-term British parliamentarian or something like, you know, obscure facts. It looks like a Peugeot.
5: <laughs> it's not malaise. Yeah. 64 uh, to 67.
1: It's not even muscle car, right? It's sort of like just whatever. One of the other ones that I'm going to throw out for you guys to chomp on if we're talking foreign cars. And I think it captures the essence of Malays from the island of Japan, the Nissan
5: 280 ZX. That's a little bit of a hot take. I like that. I like where you're going
1: right? You want something different. You want something foreign. I hate to say it's in this awkward phase of the Z, but it exemplifies malaise as far as I'm concerned. It's overly luxurious. The performance isn't that great, but you could turn it into its muscly predecessors by beefing it up, dropping some of the weight. It is a two plus two. That's part of its disadvantage when they came out with the 280ZX.
3: I'm a great defender of the 280ZX. I really am. Big shock, right, guys? Yeah, uh-huh. Big shock. Yeah. Okay. But I'll just say this one thing in defense of the 280ZX.
5: It's ugly. I mean, look, my dad had a 240. I owned a 350Z. I love Z cars. That's an ugly car.
1: It screams malaise, though. Look at it.
5: You're right. You're it right. Does. 100%. It but it doesn't have the redeeming qualities of some of these cars where you're like, I like the lines. I like the stance. It's got good bones. Just rip out the emissions equipment and pull its head out of its own ass.
3: You can't fix that. No, you can't fix what it looks like. You're right. It doesn't excite you when you look at it. It doesn't say, wow. But on a performance level, I'll tell you something. That car was only beat by one other in zero to 60 quarter mile. And that was the Ferrari 308. The Porsche and it were neck and neck. It was an incredible performer. I was shocked. And when you consider the price... It was the cheapest of that entire flock. It was only $17,000 in 1981 for the Turbo. Great performer. Really, really is. And... I think largely what you're saying, because it is kind of ho-hum, because it is kind of mass-produced, because, and I hate to say it, but it does still have that Japanese sort of stigma attached to it. You can still get one for a veritable bargain. So for our listener who might be thinking about, I want a first-time performance classic, maybe not a muscle car. I don't think it's fair to call it a muscle car. I think that's a serious contender
5: for the era. I give it credit from the perspective of, I put myself in the position of somebody in 1981 looking at this car Mm -hmm. and like, as a car person, I can point at some of the proportions and some of the things that I don't like, but damn, does this thing look like the future in a lot of ways? And you're like, okay, I have a hard argument to make that it's cheaper than like the car that came out in 84, the 300 ZX, which is just a much more sorted car. I think both of these things are fully depreciated. They're just worth the value of the metal and the fact that it's a running automobile, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and however well the person has maintained it to that point. I realized that I wouldn't call the 300ZX a malaise car by any means, but it's kind of the point. You know, it's like if you're going to get a Z... You're dealing with rust and all kinds of other stuff with that generation of cars that it's like, if you're going to deal with that kind of pain, just get a 240 or just get a 300. I don't know. You struck
4: a chord with me because I do love Z cars. So I get a little opinionated. 240s were horrible with just falling apart with rust. And I didn't know if they'd fixing that with the 280s. So that would be an issue with trying to find one is if they were as bad as the 240s with rust issues.
3: And again, if you do find one, it brings up that cool conversation point at Cards and Coffee of, wow, I haven't seen one of these in a long time. How'd you find it? Where'd you find it? How do you like it? You know, and and at this point too, you know, they say time heals all wounds. Okay, Mark, you can't get away from, I'm not going to say it's ugly. I I disagree with that, but it isn't an exciting looking car. It's not something that really, wow, I got to have one of those, you know, for some reason, the Japanese cars, I still don't think they've quite figured out how to make a Ooh, look at that. You know, you've got Lexus out there with these freaked out front ends and these weird little haunches. And and I think really they're just like, how weird can we go here, guys? But yeah, Mark, you're right. The 300, the Z31, that first edition, that was a much better car than the 280, which was still trying to be a 240, but it wasn't. It was trying to be a luxurious car. It really did work for 1981. It was a great car.
1: So, I struggled in my research to find foreign vehicles that really fit the definition of either a muscle car or a malaise car. And so obviously the 280ZX fits the category of malaise. It was built in the right time. It has that luxury over performance thing, despite its aesthetics and all that. There are two other cars that I found, but not much else. And please, if you have some suggestions for European or Japanese, by all means, but I'm going to throw these out there for you. The big baddie the muscle and malaise car of the era, whether you look at it from under the hood, from the outside, from its interior, is going to be the granddaddy of them all, the 928, followed by its littlest sister, the 924. Both of these cars scream middle 70s. They exemplify the malaise. They're probably the only true malaise cars from the German manufacturers or the European manufacturers as a whole. So I'm just throwing those out there. Wow, it's
5: fighting fighting words. Bring it! Bring it! Everybody loves to hate on the 924. That's an easy one. I mean, if you look at the history of the 924, Porsche didn't intend to make that car for themselves, right? It was a consulting gig that VW walked away from, and so they said, screw it, fine, we'll make it. And the 928, yeah, I have to take issue with that. So we've talked about in other episodes that like the greatest 90s car is a Dodge Viper from the 2000s. Like some things cross their decade. And I would say the 928 is an 80s car. And they launched it in the 70s and they made it to the mid 90s. But it is a quintessential 80s car car. Like when you look at it and like, yeah, okay. I mean, in 85 with the 32 valve, it got a lot better in the late seventies. They had challenges, I guess, homologating it, you know, getting it through into the United States, you know, which they didn't really fix until 85, but fair for people to disagree with me. I don't think of the 928 as a malaise car. See, I, I beg to differ.
1: Four and a half liters that made no power, even though it was better power than everybody else. I mean, from a German perspective, it was an underperforming engine.
5: It's, so get the gray
1: market, like import one, like bring it in through the harbor. The best nine, early 928 is an LS swap 928. I'm just going to say it. But if you've ever sat in an early 928...
5: No, I can't say I've sat in a 70s 928.
1: They reek of the Malays era. Not in the way the Americans did it, where it was like, we're going to put gold leaf and all sorts of trim everywhere
3: that's
1: yeah it was like big you know just knobbly nasty just big buttons like something out of like a play school you know cozy coop kind of thing like a big egg a big egg exactly and then they had like these just god awful interiors, and some people love them. Don't get, get me wrong. I, I'm not a big fan of like the Pasha sort of houndstooth, sort of checkerboard interior, or the blue jean, or some of these weird tartans that they were
5: trying to come out with. This that's just cool though. Come on, you could just get leather. Don't be poor. Get leather. I think it's hilarious that you're saying the original 928 interior was bad. Have you looked at the interior pictures of every other car we've talked about tonight? Oh, they're horrendous. By comparison, the 928's amazing. Of course
1: it is. (laughs) because it's a fortune, But no, in in all seriousness, I also bring up the 928 because if you listen to the interviews with the early designers of the 928, they said they took their inspiration from all things, the AMC Pacer, right? So you're sort of like, oh God. So here we are. That's
5: it. My background is a 1978 928 interior. Is it perfect? No. Is it 10 times better? Like add a zero better to every other American car from 1978?
6: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Are those AC vents on the door? Yes. They did that for a while.
1: (laughs) That's luxury, baby. That's That's amazing.
6: (laughs) It's
5: personalization. That gives you that cockpit. You were a fighter pilot and that's your personal, you know, air device. I wouldn't
4: fit in that, but it looks great. (laughs) Mark, I think you picked one of the better looking pictures because I'd pulled that up and was looking at it. And there's a bunch of them on here that just, maybe it's just the color schemes that just, I don't know. They just don't do it for me. Oh yeah. I mean, they do some
5: crazy stuff. The, The whole black and white, like Salvador Dali
4: interior, which that's just my name for it. That's insane. Am I correct in looking at that, that the handbrake is actually next to the door?
1: Yes, it's that way in the 944 as well. Interesting. And even the C4 does that.
4: Correct. Yeah. And,
1: and my Jeep, the handbrake is a pedal on that side, too. It's like not uncommon.
4: Well, I'm used to handbrakes being in the center. That's, that's what
1: threw me off. Yeah, it's it's different. It's weird. It gets in the way of moving the seat, too. It's super annoying.
5: <laughs> yes, exactly. Dog's got it.
3: <laughs> I'm ready for my malaise. <laughs> Yes, I own one of these gentlemen.
1: <laughs> uh... That was made out of an old 928. That's what he's not telling you.
3: And it tastes awful. I'll tell you, it tastes it awful.
1: Balls. Yeah. So yes, to Dan's point, you picked the nicest <laughs> representation of a 928. Go find like the Daytona interior, or go find the Pasha interior. Go find like the pumpkin interior. Like, dude, they're ridiculous. Like psychedelic nonsense.
3: I love the Pasha interior. I do. There, 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 there. Mark has it right there.
1: It looks like yeah. a like I'm in a psychology. Yeah, yeah. Exam. it's
5: trippy it's trippy there's no accounting for taste it. like some people they did enough drugs that they thought that was cool it was the 70s there was disco
4: you're still picking one of those seasons. go with the tan interior with the black and white checker center and it just, it it's just it doesn't go together i
2: was gonna say we're in the twilight zone with that interior it's terrible
1: <laughs> it's terrible and again it's these big just chunky funky everything is just for german standards it's just yeah
3: And if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Pasha 928, wasn't that only available one year?
1: It was like a special edition.
3: And again, it kind of goes right back to what I was saying originally, which is Flash and Panache. Yeah. Where's the glitter? You know, we're not going to go real fast. We know that, but we don't want you to think about that. We want you to think you're in a really cool car. You know, I'm a 928 guy. I've always loved 928. I got nothing against 924. I think they're fine cars. Weird, but they do their job. If I can shift gears here a little bit on you, Eric, you wanted to go across the pond and talk about some uh, European and Japanese Malay's crap. I'd like to bring up the XJS.
1: Yeah. That is a good point. That
3: to me is the European equivalent of a Cordoba. It's got its fine Corinthian Wiltonite leather, whatever, wood everywhere. It has flying buttresses out the rear end. It doesn't run worth crap. A lot of people argue with me about that. I love that. But that is like me saying Fiat's are reliable.
1: They run really well. If you go to jagsthatrun.com because they're all Chevy swap, they're amazing. Three fifties. Yeah.
6: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's
3: where we bring Andrew in on
6: this. I'm just looking up the XJS now, and I'm looking at it and seeing all this like kind of rear weighted, swept B pillar back to the taillights. I'm like, I'm seeing Chevelle. I'm seeing classic what I consider to be muscle car lines. There's nothing wrong with that. You may have to put everything underneath it may have to get replaced. But again, I'm going to say it one more time. You buy a classic car because it looks like a classic car. You're not buying it because it's more luxurious. It's got better features. Nothing's going to work the way a modern car is, but it's going to be different. And there's a great example of, if you're willing to put the work into it, it's pretty damn cool.
3: It goes back to when you roll into a carton coffee and you've got an XJS, especially an early one. Holy cow, you've got gold. You really do, because nobody sees these cars anymore. And remember, kind of like the 928, this car stretched from...
6: Forever. 75 to 96. The
3: 96, yeah.
6: 21 years.
3: Yeah, this car had longevity, just like the 928. And this is the other one I was going to throw out there. Now, this one almost anti-malaise. It really is. But I was going to throw in there with the Jag, the 6 Series BMW. But you look at the 8 Series BMW, those things are going psychotic on the used market right now for a really prime example. And yet built right alongside of them, there was the XJS. They were right there and they do not command the same amount of money. Going back to those friends of mine who have them, have had them, once you sort them out and if you drive them, that's their biggest enemy is people don't drive them. If you drive them and if you sort them out, they're actually really, really good cars. But everyone says the same thing. Avoid the 12, go for the 6. It's just a much better car all the way around. It was more modern. So you're losing that 70s-ness that we're all talking about that we all love. But if you want something you can drive every day and not worry about too much, the six cylinder is your best friend. If you're just looking for that malaise, I am in your face 100%, go with the 12. But you got to be able to afford it.
1: And the best recommendation I've ever been given about buying a Jag is make sure it has a lot of miles because then you know it actually ran. Yes,
3: Yes, I've heard the same thing. The 450 SLC, it was the most expensive car Mercedes built in the mid-70s. It was the father of the 380 500 SEC and the 560 SEC, but it looked like a 450 SL that had been stretched, but it was their ultimate car. It was their most expensive coupe. It is a coupe. It has a long hood. It's a 4.5 liter V8. It has some muscle to it, but not enough to really do anything. It was hugely expensive in its day. I think they were $29,000, if I remember correctly. That car screams "fu" money in the 70s. It screams, I have no taste whatsoever. They're totally insulting. And on today's market, they're just starting to see a little uptick in their value. That for one of these listeners of ours with their thought of, I want to buy a first time car. I, I really think your XJS and your SLCs Those are really kind of the ultimate statement of I made it in the seventies and boy do the cars suck.
5: And they're still cheap. You can get them
3: in the teens,
5: the SLCs.
3: Even in mint condition, they're not all that much money. And, you know, it's a Mercedes. You can get parts for it anywhere. Pretty much anybody knows how to work on them. They don't break easy. They go pretty well. And, it, and like Eric was saying about Jaguar, you know, if you buy them with high miles, you know that it's earned its salt. It's gone that far.
1: Never buy a low mileage Jag.
3: <laughs> how do we feel about Esprit? Esprit was born smack in the middle of oh the beginning of it and that is a car that's very similar to some just like the jaguar just like a pasha interior it's a love it hate it car 007 made it the new Aston Martin.
1: I think we have to take the wedge cars out. The 928 fits both categories, muscle and malaise, because it was a the German cars. muscle car. The Esprit is still a sports car, it's mid engine, it's, it's a it's a wedge car, but you hit on something important. You mentioned Aston Martin. And if you go back to like the Persuaders with Roger Moore Ash. driving that V8 Vantage Aston Martin, it's uh-huh. similar to the XJS that you're referring to. I actually like the look of that. That car it has that kind of Mustang-ish feel mm-hmm. to it. Now, granted, that's going to take our collector into that stratosphere because that's going to be a right. six-figure six car. They Brilliant. are super right. cool,
3: and I think that's where the Jag is really a strong contender. Even the nine twenty-eight, you know, even those cars are starting to get a little bit pricey for what they are. They're joining the eight series BMW, but the Jag is still flatline. And if you okay, forgive me because this is getting nineties-ish here, but if you really want a better car all the way around. The XK8 and yeah. the subsequent XK was a fantastic car. Now, a lot of people will throw at me, oh, it's a Ford. Yeah, that's what, great. Throw me an XJS, throw me an XK. Tell me which one is the better car. It's the Ford. Okay, so get over it. Get out there and enjoy your Ford War.
1: Is that like a boudoir? What is that? Boudoir. Yeah. Come ride in my Ford War
3: boudoir. And don't bring the Grey foupon. Bring mustard. You know, Blue Label with just mustard on it. Better yet, bring little packets of mayonnaise from jack-in-the-box or something. Seriously, though, I, I think for Malays, I think if you want the ultimate European malaise, I really wonder if that XJS is not the beast.
1: I'm starting to come around on that. I think the 928 is in the muscle car category for sure. It's a close second to this, though, but this, I think, probably takes the cake.
3: It's so, I don't want to say gaudy. Personally, I always thought it was a beautiful car. I really did.
1: I like the version that Mark has up with the covered headlights. I always thought that was the best of all of them. Yeah.
3: Yeah, the European. That's a, that's a first gen. Those wheels, etc. Yeah, they were magnificent
5: cars. I think the British tend to get the look right the first time, and then they just screw it up from there.
3: Yeah, they, their evolution is wrong. The F-type, like it just looks
5: worse. The time goes on. could
3: get the convertible version also.
5: That's true. Yes. Yeah, they were beautiful without their top. Are we still talking about cars? <laughs> no comment. Yeah. I mean, if you're going, if you're going European, the Ford Granada Gia, good car. Some characters just died. <sighs> <sighs> Moving on. Moving on. No. (laughs)
1: Uh, I want a car that's named after a a weapon of somewhat destruction. (laughs) The Granada is a perfect one.
3: Gran Torino. Cordoba. All these posh names. You know, it's like those cheesy, I don't know how well you guys know LA. I'm sorry. I'm from LA. So there's a place we have called the Valley, the San Fernando Valley. And for the most part, it's a pit, but you can get anything in the world you want. In this pit, every sense of humanity is in the pit. In fact, there's a great saying about Van Nuys or the valley, which is valley money makes Beverly Hills living possible because it's literally right over the hill. Most of the people in Beverly Hills won't tell you this, but they all own land over in the valley because that's where the business is. That's where money is made. Now, that being said, most of the apartments in the valley are known as San Remo or they're known as Granada or they're known as something else. It's supposed to psychologically take away how crappy that apartment really is and give it a posh name and make you think, oh, no, 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 I live on Lido Isle.
5: No, you you don't. You live on Colfax. And I think this gets muddled when we go into Europe.
1: It really does. To be
5: totally honest.
1: And, And by the way, I'm a fan of the Cortina too because it was featured in shows like Life on Mars. And you got to see a lot of those European malaise cars in that show, but they don't hold a candle to the kind of as Don put it, crap that we were producing over here.
3: One thing I noticed, and just kind of scratching down some chicken notes here for this episode, when I hit 1982, a little epiphany hit me. One of my favorite transams, you guys will laugh me out of here, but I am the Malaise guy, so forgive me. The 82 Transam, the first year of the third gen with the little flip-up headlights, the bowling ball hubcaps, etc. Night Rider was an 82 Transam. But then I got to thinking, you know. Charger came back in 1983 or 1982. It was a front-wheel drive Mitsubishi, basically, with a 2.2 liter Chrysler. If you had the turbo, you only had the five-speed manual. Then you had the Mustang, which finally brought on that kind of muscular Fox body. It shed the the Mustang too, and came out with the more squared off, etc. But the one thing you've got to say about all of these cars, they kind of shed from muscle to sport they still have that muscular flair that you know american chest pounding flair to the look but they didn't have it under the hood but what did they have they had handling that third gen trans am handled like it was nobody's business that mustang handled fantastically that charger with the front wheel drive and the turbo holy cow if you could keep the turbo lag to a minimum and what did that father the daytona and the laser and of course surrounding that eric to your point you want to talk about the oddballs Just sticking with the Mopar family, Chrysler LeBaron GTC, is it a personal coupe convertible or can it be considered kind of a muscle car? Yeah, I don't know how gray you want to go with this, but I just noticed in in my little chicken scratch, things started getting sportier in the 80s, less muscular, more sporty. Case in point, Mustang SVO. I know it's a Mustang and we're not supposed to say that word. (laughs) But the SVO, 2.3 liter, turbo, total European styling, built right alongside the GT, and yet it was more expensive than the GT. And people couldn't figure out, why am I spending more money on this? Ah, it was a handling car that went just as quick, just as fast as a GT.
4: I was going to say to add to what you were saying, Don, in regards of they were going to a more sportier there in that transition through the 80s, they were also switching to a lot of lighter weight materials on the vehicles. You look at all the plastic in the interiors and things like that, which helped where those low horsepower producing engines after all of the uh, fuel crisis stuff of the late 70s, they were trying to find ways to get that power to weight better. So they started using lighter weight stuff. And unfortunately, some of it was crappy electronics in the 80s, but that's what it was to have at that time. And to Don's point, he hit the nail on the head. There is a transition there
1: where you started in the late 80s. You heard about the last of the muscle cars. The GNX itself, the Grand National, is that crescendo to the end of the real muscle car era because it was built as a muscle car, not as a sports car, even though we joke that it's a sports coupe and and things like that. But in reality, Don's right. They did move more towards sportier cars. And we started to see that more in the 90s. I've got one final car, which I think is the, the pinnacle here. But Andrew, Mark, Rob, even Dan, do you have anything else on your list? I want to go kind of around the loop again and see if there's any other cars that we missed. Andrew, something you're thinking about?
6: Yeah, I got the Monte Carlo in my background because from the big guy episode, embrace the bigger car, embrace the oversized car gotten a little bit pudgy muscle cars that are still a bodies that led into G bodies that again, have all the potential in the world. They don't look as good as all the classics, but that's, what's been put in front of you. So take a look at the cars that again, with a refresh, with a little bit of love, a little bit of your own personal style put on it is I think a a perfect example of a a malaise era muscle car that can be something to be proud of.
4: That late 70s Monte Carlo, they even had a a fastback version of it that had like huge sweeping glass that was, in my opinion, a very interesting look. I won't say it's good or bad, but it was interesting look for that. Body line.
6: Yeah. Shave the trim. Put a decent wheel and tire package on it. You got something that looks pretty tough.
2: I think Dan was referring to the aero look. That's what we call it back then. Yeah.
6: Yeah. Yep. It was Chevy and Pontiac that had that, right?
3: Yes. Bring up a Monte Carlo. And let's talk about a car that transcends because that car started out as what? A personal luxury coupe. Remember, it was supposed to be sort of an answer to the Buick Riviera, the Oldsmobile Tornado, whatever. It was a personal luxury coupe that was somewhat affordable. Ah, but you could also get a 454 if you wanted it and spice it up and make it a real straight going performance machine. It, it really was basically a fancy Chevelle for all yeah. intents and purposes. But here's a car that transcended from the muscle car era of Chevelle's dominant CUDA is dominant, et cetera, to, wow, we can't do this anymore, guys. So what are we going to be? We're going to become a real, live, personally luxury coupe. But you could still get a 454, and you could still have a lot of torque, and you could still have bucket seats, and you could still, you know, if you just kept your mouth shut, the insurance company, the EPA, they really didn't know. Looking at that car right there, it looks like something your third grade teacher would drive. And that was kind of the beauty of it. It was sort of that Luxo sleeper thing. I always thought the Monte Carlo was a great car. And then there was that moment of the late, late 70s, early, early 80s, when it was just kind of a weird little funky thing. Then came, in my opinion, the nicer one, I want to say 1984. Yeah, the G-Body. Yeah, sort of matched the, uh, the Regal and that Grand Prix we're talking about. I thought they got back that muscular look but they still retained that librarian ish you know you could be the librarian or you could be you know the sunday racer if you wanted to i always thought they were a tremendous tremendous car along with the regal and you know whatever was in the family
1: i think you just described the monte carlo as linda carter don i'm just kind of throwing that out there
3: that's you man that's you know <laughs>
0: Uh, I'm not playing the game correctly. I'm thinking the Chevy 454 SS pickup truck.
1: But that was in the 90s, though.
0: 88, to 98. You can't get more malaise than that, though. Is a 454 producing like 210 horsepower?
1: Yeah, that's muscle car. It's not luxury, right? Malaise really defines luxury on top of this non-performance. It's in replacement of. So that truck, I mean, I've driven one of those. They're pretty slick. I mean, they're not super fast by any stretch of the means, but they're they're kind of badass. They're a little bit
0: menacing. Yeah, to Andrew's point, they're a can- and a 250 nitrous shot away from running 10s in the quarter mile <laughs> yeah, that's right
3: And they, they were one of those
6: buildable cars yeah it's yep. a it's
0: a 454 i mean huge iron block you know motor that'll take a 250 shot no problem all day long cam
6: swap fixes everything
0: and exhaust cam swap all the things
1: <laughs> before you ls swap cam swap Okay,
2: we go all the way up to 1987 with the uh, El Camino. So we had the El Caminos that started out with performance from the old Chevelles and went through into the 70s with the different model changes. And then into the 80s, I think they finally had 350s at the end. But the pricing of those
5: is very affordable for the later one. You're genius. How the hell did we skip El Camino? I have no idea. El Camino. And they made it for so damn long. It's the perfect Malaysia. You could get like a 1990 or something. And it's basically the 1975.
2: (laughs) And you know what the crazy thing? They're going to be coming out with a new El Camino, according to Chevy. They've been talking about or threatening to come out with a Chevelle that's $150,000. 150000
3: If I may counter that, Ford is also talking about bringing back the Gran Torino.
5: Ranchero. What about the Ranchero? Ooh, the we're Ranchero. We're on car wagons, truck things now. Crux. They call them Crux.
3: If we're going to go car truck, we need to bring Andrew in on this because down under,
6: they had a ute, and that oh, yeah. was
3: a spectacular
6: vehicle it really was they have a whole subculture they have the ford version they have the the holden version it's just v8 in the front and work in the back or however you want to put mm-hmm. that together but yeah amazing that, that's
5: mullet
4: not it's an in.
6: inverse it's an inverse <laughs> mullet it's that's an right. inverse mullet that's right business in the front party in the back
4: oh my goodness other than the uh, El Camino, I was going to throw out the Chevy Love. Oh, yeah. They're phenomenal. They were like one of the original mini pickups. Oh, that's mm-hmm. like
1: the Zuzu Pup or whatever they called it.
4: Yeah, but it, the, the Chevy Love, it was cool. And I think they actually, for a short period of time, you could get it with the small block V8 in them from the factory. And don't forget the Ford Courier. We missed something huge, guys.
3: Oh, well, that's why I'm saying, you know, Brad with his 454 over there, you no, might no. have a whole different episode bringing uh, up pickups.
1: We missed something tremendously huge. We're talking about malaise. We're talking about muscle. We're talking land yacht. We're talking performance. I got it all. It goes above the El Camino, the Ranchero, all of them. It is the GMC Ventura Van 18 edition. Vans.
6: (laughs) Muscle Van.
1: Muscle Van. I'm all for that. Remember in
3: the 70s, the van was the king, the custom van with the yeah. custom paint, the custom That's interior, right. waterbeds, bars. I mean, they.
1: That's malaise. That's malaise. Corvette summer, Vanessa. Remember? Exactly. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget the mirrors on the ceiling. <laughs> oh, you got to have those. <laughs> the brand antennas. So I've got one for you guys as we kind of close out. These many suggestions we've thrown on the table for our collectors to consider if they're looking down the muscle and malaise era, trying to find something different, trying to find something new, something that not everybody else has or would consider. Now, hear me out. We talked about no Mustangs, no Camaros, no Kudos, no Challengers, no Chargers, no Chevelles, no this, no that, the other thing. But what if I could present you a vehicle based on one of those with infinite amounts of of customizability, infinite amounts of performance, even potentially track worthy, but really emphasizes and quantifies in one vehicle muscle and malaise. Bear with me now as I present you the Ford Fairmont based on the Fox body. 1983. Yeah. And And they had
3: a nine inch rear end.
1: That car is the car that does it all. If you think about The styling, it's malaise through and through. The interior is as well. But underneath, there's a sleeping dragon waiting to be tuned and set up and be used in any capacity you like.
3: Eric, if I can burst just a little bit here.
1: Go ahead, Don.
3: I want to take it just a little further. Okay, just a little further here. I want to bring in, it's called the Lincoln Versailles. One of those cars with the funky names that promises you exotic locations and fine foods when really it's just a Granada in a tuxedo. But it's still the 5-liter. It's still the C4. It's still the 9-inch rear end with four-wheel disc brakes. And when you get inside that car, you're surrounded with beautiful luxuries. You know what I'm saying? You've got some leather upholstery. You've got some fake wood. You've got silver gauges and baby. Ah, you're driving a Lincoln, you know what I'm saying?
1: I mean, when you look at the Lincoln Versailles, I mean, I definitely see it. It it is next level malaise, but it's going to be a hard toss between that Fairmont and the Lincoln. And I think I'm going to lean towards the Fairmont only because of the fact that I've personally seen somebody set one of these up for track use and it is a performer. It's shockingly quick.
3: Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is where the Fairmont has their serious advantage of weight. The Lincoln's going to have a thousand pounds over the Fairmont,
2: and that car was also available as a wagon. On top of it all,
1: oh my and God, no, that does uh, it. That settles it. If you can get it as a wagon, it's a Fox yeah. Body station right. Done, done. Fox Body wagon. My old girlfriend back in the eighties had one of those cars. Rob, you have won the day with that suggestion.
5: You win the internet with Fox Body wagon. <laughs>
1: Put a coyote in that thing, man! You've got a screamer. Oh yeah! Even a three hundred two out of like a Mustang yeah. GT in that would be amazing.
3: Well, remember the car that replaced the Fairmont was the LTD two. Basically, it was a stopgap. It was built after the Fairmont but before the Taurus, and it was subsequent with the Taurus for a little while. And Bob Bondurant had them as training vehicles, and they were dogs. They couldn't get out of their own way, so they swapped it out with a Mustang five liter and turned it into a real. Beast. They took some Ford executives out, and Ford executives were confused, wondering where'd you get this car? Where do? Well, we built it. They liked it so much, they started building their own for 1984 and 85. They didn't build too many, maybe 3,000 of them. But they were equipped with a Mustang 5 liter and automatic transmission. And essentially, it's what you're talking about, Eric. It's just already ready to go from the factory with a five liter, but it's a little guy. It's the same size as that Fairmont there, but that might be something to think of too, but it might also be too far in the eighties. I don't know.
1: Well, either way, I think we've given everybody a lot of food for thought. So let's do a quick lightning round. Everybody pick one car out of the ones we suggest, or maybe one that we haven't mentioned yet that our first time buyers should buy. What would it be?
4: (laughs) I'm going to throw one out that wasn't mentioned. I'm going to go to the Chevy two Nova since that's the muscle car side. And I really miss the one that I had when I was younger.
2: I'm thinking about a Regal Turbo, 1979.
4: 1976
5: Cadillac Eldorado convertible. All right, first generation Dodge Dart, four doors.
3: Yeah, I think I'm going to stick with my home base. I'm going to go with a Lincoln Mark
1: IV. I really do think it's a hard toss for me between three cars. It's the 928, the AMC Javelin, or the Fort Fairmont that we mentioned there at the tail end. I think those are three big contenders.
3: Well, if we can pick three, I'm going with the Lincoln, I'm going with the XJS, and I'm going with the SLC. (laughs) XJS was my second. You got to think, there are three Luxo barges from each country. It's kind of fun. The Caprice wagon behind
0: me. And it doesn't fit, but I'm part host. I make up the rules. I don't care.
1: It suddenly became, whose line is it anyway? The points still matter. All jokes aside, I think there's so many options, especially when, as we've been alluding to, you start thinking outside the box, <laughs> the boxy vehicles themselves, between the vans, the utes, the crux, the wagon, these supposed muscle cars, there's just so many different ways to take this. So it's an underappreciated and overlooked period in automotive history, but it's a great time to go back and revisit it and bring new eyes to it and say, Where can we take these cars? How can we make them cool again?
0: Bring your garage or collection to the next level with Don over at garagestylemagazine.com. Get all the latest information on events, clubs, forums, and recommended vendors over with Rob at collectorcarguide.net. You're guaranteed to catch Mark and Mountain Man Dan on another episode of Break Fix in the near future, so stay tuned for that. And if you haven't listened to the season one classic, Big Man in a Little Car, it's a great episode featuring Andrew. Thanks again to our panel for another great What
1: Should I Buy debate. That's right. We never come to a conclusion, but we always have fun getting there.
0: If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org.
1: Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.